Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Titus 1, chapter 1, sorry. I'll be reading from verse 10 through verse 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. If I haven't met you, I'm Quinn, and I serve as a bivocational pastor here at Kingsway. And my voice might sound a little bit weak this morning, I'm getting over a cold, but I will tell you my spirit has been strengthened by studying this text. And I trust that God's word will serve our souls and feed us this morning. Jesus coined a phrase on the Sermon of the Mount. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He will either hate the one, love the other. You cannot serve God and money. And while today's sermon's not so much about money, it is about who or what you are devoted to. I was thinking about the word devotion. It comes up once or twice here in our text today. And I looked back at Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Here's a few of the definitions related to this concept of being devoted. The state of being dedicated, consecrated, or solemnly set apart for a particular purpose. A solemn attention to the supreme being in worship. A yielding of the heart and affections to God. Ardent love or affection. And this is what the book of Titus is all about. Listen to this good news from Titus 2, not the text for us today, but but here's a key phrase. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. So if you've turned from your sin and you've trusted and rested your faith in Christ, And he saved you. This this is you. He he has set you apart. You are now devoted to God. But ask yourself this morning, does this describe you? These, these, These words, do they describe a growing relationship with Christ for you? Dedicated, consecrated, holy affection, ardent love, zeal. And if not... Why not? Paul writes in Ephesians that without growing up into maturity in Christ, we will be tossed to and fro 
by the winds and the waves of doctrine, of the human cunning, the, all the ideas, the deceitful schemes that, that man creates will be tossed to and fro in the waves. So I want to ask you, what winds and waves threaten your life to break up the, the ship of faith, if you will, in your life as a Christian? Some of us in this room have not put our faith in Jesus for salvation. You're out to sea without as much as a lifeboat to keep you afloat. There's others who profess Christ with your mouth on a single day, but you left that profession behind and you don't have anything that's keeping you above water. And yet there are many of us who are active in helping one another grow in our relationship with God, but we are often unaware of what threatens to make shipwreck of our faith. And that is what this text is about. That's where the Lord meets us and cares for us. The Lord knows our need, and that's why by his spirit he inspired Paul to write Titus 2 or Titus 1, 10 through 6. So what I'm going to pray this morning is a prayer from a 16th century Anglican minister, just asking God's word to have its full effect on us. Would you pray with me? Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. We find ourselves at the end of the first chapter in Titus, where Titus 1, 10 through 16, teaches us this. It teaches us to guard against false teaching, to embrace godly discipline, and to profess the gospel through living faithfully devoted to God. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to have three words that will give us kind of some structure for our three points today. Here are the three words. Guard, embrace, profess. Guard, embrace, profess. And the big question we're trying to answer that Paul answers here in this text is, how do we remain sound in the faith? That's the, the topic of our sermon today is sound in the faith. So how do we remain sound in the faith or healthy in the faith? Number one, we guard against false teaching for the purity of the gospel and the unity of the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter, rather short letter, to his companion Titus so that he might put what remained into order. Titus 1.5, in the churches on Crete. So Titus's work was to begin, we'll remember this from last week, with appointing elders pastor elders to serve as overseers in local churches. And so we studied that last week. Verses 5 through 9, Matthew explained the nature and the qualifications of this role of pastor, elder, overseer, how one's character and marriage and family shows and is formed by believing the gospel. And finally, how the, the responsibility or the primary work of the pastor is to do this, to instruct in sound doctrine. And so let's read this previous verse, verse 9, as we enter into our text today. So we'll read 9 and 10 together. 
He must hold firm. The pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Four, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So why would Paul not stop at the positive, instruct in sound doctrine? Why does he also give what appears to be the negative and also rebuke those who contradict it? It appears that there is a considerable connection, an inseparable connection, two sides of the same coin when it comes to protecting sound doctrine is teaching and correction of false teaching. So the duty of the pastor must entail both. And the context for this letter helps us answer that question. Why an emphasis on both? What's going on here in the churches in Crete? That should be our question. What, what are they facing And why is rebuke considered the biblical response here? Well, verse 10 starts out that there are many who are insubordinate, who are empty talkers and deceivers. Now, I'm someone who often is tempted to think that what I face in the world today, what we face as Christians in the world today, is new. It's unique. It's different than anything before. But And maybe you're tempted to do the same. But when I open my Bible, I'm reminded of things like, you know that passage in Ecclesiastes, there's there's nothing new under the sun. I open my Bible and it doesn't have to be Ecclesiastes. It can be Titus 1. (laughs) And I'm reminded that churches have faced this sort of thing before. Take take just one idea. Take the concept of sexuality. We're we're doing a teaching, uh, an adult Sunday school through gender and sexuality right now this week and the following five weeks. And I was thinking about how it's so bewildering what we see out in the world related to gender and sexuality, right? But then when you look back at scripture, you see that people at all different times in our history of faith have dealt with these sorts of things. So in Abraham's day, the men of Sodom were driven by deviant and violent distortions of sexuality. In Moses' day, the Canaanites offered worship to the goddess Asherah through sexual immorality and prostitution. In Paul's day, he had to rebuke the church in Corinth because a member of the church was not being disciplined for sleeping with his father's wife. So when you look at gender and sexuality today, yes, there's some things that are different, but at the core, nothing's new under the sun. And so when I read verse 10, I I immediately think, you know, is Paul writing to this first century church in Crete, to Titus, or is he talking about us? For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. Do we face that today in the church, even here in America in the 21st century? Are there those who are insubordinate, who are anti-authoritarian, who are suspicious of authority, Now think of yourself, if you're an American Christian, you're probably nodding, or at least you feel a little tug in your heart, because that kind of hits close to home. Anti-authority is kind of an American thing, right? 
But think about the ways that God has set up good authority in our lives, right? Think about parenting and the family, right? Think about, uh, think about the church. Think about civil government, right? Scripture is clear. Children, obey your parents. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So we shouldn't be so much suspicious of authority, though that is the air we breathe today. But also he calls out not just those who are anti-authority, he says there are empty talkers and deceivers. So what would that look like? And, and he's not just talking about the chatty Kathy. He's, he's talking about those that are idle and those that speak empty words or worthless words where you would be led astray by promises of life is over here, right? Matthew talked about that this morning. And yet life is not found over here. So think about those empty words and those deceit the, the self-deceit that comes in, right? In James 1, we're told that religion, people who think they're religious, but does not bridle his tongue, actually deceives his heart, and that person's religion is worthless, key word. Or Ephesians 5, do not let any one of you deceive with empty words, because for these things, on account of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Or Colossians 3, see to it that no one be captive by human deceit, by vain, cunning words, right? According to human tradition, not according to Christ, right? These are the things that we need to be aware of that are not just happening in Crete in the first century, but are happening here. And to bring it a little bit closer to home, those things are things that, we experience ourselves, not just things that false teachers out there are doing. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So what should be our response to this? Paul's pulling on a thread. It's starting to hit home. We're starting to feel that. We should be, what's the key word for this first point? We should be on guard. In fact, Paul enforces the God-ordained pastoral authority to care in this way, when he says in verse 11 that they must be silenced. These false teachers who, out of empty talk and deceit and insubordination of sound doctrine, these false teachers must be silenced. Now, what is Paul not saying? Paul is not saying, when he says they must be silenced, he's not communicating the same notion that we have in our, in our modern world of speaking truth to power. Okay? It's not, you know, speak truth to power and, and therefore you will silence that opinion. Okay? He's also not saying, you know, with, with saying they must be silenced, it's not the same, as, you know, modern notion as cancel culture right? You guys know what cancel culture is. Like if, if you say something that's a little bit off base, that doesn't line up with what the majority agrees with, well then we're no longer going to shop at your business. We're no longer going to come to your church. We're no longer going to whatever the thing may be. So when he says they must be silenced, he's not saying cancel them. 
In fact, the word silence here actually gives the sense of, of being bridled for a productive purpose. It's not just that they would stop talking. It's because the teaching is good. We need teachers in the church. But we need teachers who abide by sound doctrine. So what is Paul saying? Well, it's verse 9 in action. It's, it's a pastor who holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Or in other words, pastors are responsible to courageously and directly and authoritatively rebuke or respond to false doctrine by appealing to and applying the word of God, right? So if there are false teachers, they must be silenced. So why why such strong language from Paul? I sat in my studies this week wondering why such a big deal. And I, and I saw it through several verses, but he addresses it here for sure with, with at least two big reasons why Paul is taking this seriously and why we must take this seriously. According to verses 10 through 11, there's two primary concerns for the church. We must guard against false teaching for the purity of the gospel and the unity of the body of Christ. Purity of the gospel, unity of the body of Christ. So I want to linger here before we move on to our second big point. So the purity of the gospel. Verse 10 describes the many voices, not just the few, many voices who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party or literally of the circumcision, right? So there were those in the early church who maintained that in order to follow God, Even as a Christian, you had to follow the various requirements of Torah, right? The Old Testament law, specifically speaking, the Jewish tradition under the Old Covenant where God required for males to be circumcised. So here's a question. Should males, Christian males in the church, be circumcised? Uh, It's kind of a weird question, right? Well, in the early church, that was actually a huge question. It was a huge question. It was an issue that Paul and and Titus, I'll explain why, were actually really passionate about. Paul was a Jew, so it wasn't a big issue for him personally, but it was a big issue for the church as it went out globally beyond the Jewish people to the ends of the earth. So let's think about this for Titus. Titus was not a Jew, and in Galatians 2... Paul describes going down to this first council of elders in Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. Listen to what happens. Hear how the purity of the gospel is at stake in this question of should there be a requirement for Christian men to be circumcised, right? Why, is that, why does that matter? Titus, verse 3 of Galatians 2, who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped out to spy our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So that was a battle worth fighting in the early church. And it was a battle that went on not just in Jerusalem, or in other places 
in kind of that area of the world, even in Crete, which is an island, this was going on, the same question, right? And so we must be on guard as well against any distortions of the gospel. We must not yield, not submit to that which is unsound, right? If we do not hold to the trustworthy word as taught, we lose the gospel and we lose everything because of it. So Paul makes this abundantly clear in Galatians 5, just a couple chapters later, as he addresses the false teaching of the circumcision party. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. (laughs) You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So are you passionate about preserving the purity of the gospel? For us, the battle is not going to be waged over whether or not you will submit to circumcision. But there will be battles to be fought to protect the purity of the gospel. And you should have that same passion. It's not just about the purity of the gospel, though. We must also be on guard against false teaching because the unity of the body of Christ is at stake. Look at verse 11. They must be silenced. Why? Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught. Why should the false teachers be silenced? Or, again, in the original sense, be bridled, right? They're teaching for shameful gain, whether it was for financial gain or whether it was for greed of power. These people were choosing to use their position, their moment on the microphone, their leadership position, their their words on social media, their influence in the church. They were using that to teach what they ought not to teach. And what's the result? Fracturing, disunity. Paul understands that this is upsetting whole families. Now, it's possible that this is referring to family units. It's also possible that in the early church, as churches were taking place in homes, this may more clearly refer to home churches here in Crete, but the emphasis is the same, that false teaching is tearing apart families and especially those of the household of faith. False teaching does that to the church. Some are being led astray and they're leading others astray and it's creating division. And this is why the ascended King Jesus gave the church shepherds and teachers. Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until what? Until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So are pastors responsible to guard against false teaching? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So if you're not a member of a church, let me speak to you. Find a healthy church and commit to biblical membership. Why? Because your life in Christ depends on it. It's not just something that pastors are responsible for. This is something we, as members of this church, must be responsible to guard against. False teaching is an active category for Paul. It should be an active category for us. Paul says that they are teaching what they ought not to teach. In response to Matthew's exhortation about loving the Lord our God with all our mind, how would we know what it is that they ought not to teach. Think about it. And praise God that we have this book. Amen? (laughs) Praise God that we have a trustworthy revelation, a testimony of who God really is and how he has worked salvation for us in Christ. Right? I, I thank God for the many people over hundreds and hundreds of years who preserved these words for us and passed them on from generation to generation. I thank God for the early church leaders in those gatherings that identified and affirmed, you know what, this is the canon of scripture and this we can hold fast to. This has authority. This was inspired by God and we live under this. I thank God for that because, because we are not left to wonder what these false teachers ought not to teach. We know what they ought not to teach. It's what does not accord with this. It's, it's what does not accord with sound doctrine. We're told in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that we may be complete, equipped for what? Every good work. We're going to come back to that. But scripture, sound doctrine, the gospel, preserved, has everything to do with equipping us for this life and the next, for every good work. So, point number one, we guard against false teaching for the purity of the gospel and for the unity of the body of Christ. Question number two, what do we embrace What do we embrace? Point number two, we embrace godly discipline when we turn from the truth that we may be sound in the faith. My family traveled to Oregon over Christmas to to visit my side of the family. And I asked my mom to help me think through what words best describe our family. Have you guys done that in your family? It's a great exercise. We determined that cools are loud, uh, that we are hardworking, and that we're competitive. And I changed that last word to winners. <laughs> oh, and number four, we're humble. <laughs> but, but I wonder what kind of words you would use to describe your family, or your community of friends, or perhaps your country. Maybe you're like me and you would like to put a generous spin on some of those descriptors. 
But Paul doesn't do that when he is referring to the people of Crete. The transition in this next verse is a pretty brutal assessment. Read with me verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. <laughs> the Cretans were legendary for their behavior. I've been scrounging through a bunch of commentaries to better understand, like, what was going on with this group of people on this island, right? Well, apparently, the Cretans were so notorious that the Greeks actually created a verb to cretize, which means to lie and to cheat. And they had a proverbial phrase, to cretize against a Cretan, which meant to match lies with lies, as a diamond cuts diamonds. And so I think to myself, how would I assess myself? And then how does scripture assess me? Okay. So I like to think of myself as clear-minded, not impatient. I like to think of myself as high-functioning, not a workaholic. I like to think of myself as funny, not attention-seeking, right? But think about how our sinful heart distorts those things right? Our, our heart turns working hard into finding identity in our achievement, in our success. Our heart uses the words that God gave us to turn attention toward us and to put others down. Our words turn competitiveness, which I think is actually a God-given thing, into a joy-robbing comparison and greed. That's what our hearts do. So think of your family and, and what descriptors would you use to describe them? What words describe you? What words describe you apart from Christ? Paul's testimony is quite the indictment that Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons, but apart from Christ, I would have a similar indictment against me, right? And, and you would you. But it's exactly here where we meet the grace of God. But the form of that grace might come as a surprise. Look at how verse 13 instructs Titus to respond. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Titus and the elders appointed in local churches are to rebuke. And let's be honest, that's not a feel-good category for us as American Christians. Rebuke is not just for the false teachers. They're to be silenced, but who's to be rebuked? The pastoral rebuke is for those who turn away from the truth. Paul explains this a little bit more in 2 Timothy 4. He says there's, there's going to be a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from, teaching the, from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. To guard the flock from wolves, yes, the false teachers must be silenced, but those who give ear to false teaching must also be sharply rebuked. 
So if you're going to write a description for a pastor, it must include a category for the godly use of authority. Rebuke isn't a critiquing tweet of the president. Rebuke is to rebuke or to reprove is literally to tell someone of their fault. Okay? To tell someone of their fault. (laughs) You might ask, you know, Quinn, I thought you said this is where grace meets us. And it is. Listen. To watch over your profession of faith and with the authority to care for your soul, God ordains pastors with the holy responsibility to preach the word. To be ready in season and out of season to do what? To reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So godly rebuke is not punitive. It's actually restorative. It's restorative. Look again back at our text, Titus 1 verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. If the rebuke that Paul's talking about here was a severing, a cutting off, a removal, then you could say that that might not be a biblical response, Paul. But why does he say that rebuke is the biblical response here? That you may be sound in the faith. We should expect, we should even desire our pastors to at time bring rebuke. Bring correction. Why? Because God directs pastors to do that? Yes. Uh, Because we are prone to wander as members of the church? Also yes. But what does the text say? That we may be sound in the faith. To be sound in the faith, we need godly rebuke. To be sound in the faith, God knows that we need something, and so he provides something. That's grace. Have you, let's get personal, ever received godly rebuke from a pastor or from a fellow Christian in the church? Just think for a minute. Have you ever experienced that? If you did, it probably stung. It hurt. Maybe it was even confrontational. Maybe it was super uncomfortable, right? Some of us are fairly open to um, sharp disagreements, We can go toe-to-toe. A lot of us slink back from sharp disagreements and don't want anything to do with correction. But here's the thing. Whether you fall in one category or the other, what our response to godly correction looks like, it looks a lot less like being insubordinate, empty talk, and self-deceit. Verse 10. And it looks a lot more like grace-empowered vulnerability. I want to linger here and think about our response to godly correction. Okay? Do we test a rebuke by the word of God? We should. (laughs) Because if that rebuke is not coming from someone that has the authority by God's word to bring that, then, okay, let, let's, let's pause. Let's think through this. Okay, well, what if, 
What if their rebuke doesn't actually accord with sound doctrine? Okay, test it. But if it does, how do you respond? Do you allow godly correction to have its intended effect in your life? I love how Paul Tripp describes this. I want to linger on a, on a quote that I read in a book just recently from his book, Lead. Let this fill your mind. Because of the completeness of Christ's authority, the inescapability of his presence, and the surety of his promises, we don't have to be afraid of examining our weaknesses and failure. The gospel of his presence, power, and grace frees us from the burden of minimizing or denying reality. The gospel of his presence, power, and grace welcomes us to be the most honest community on earth. That's a vision for what godly correction would look like. If we had that that humble heart that said, Lord, I'm testing if this is coming from you. I'm looking at your word. But as I see that this aligns and accords with your word, God, I receive that correction. Man, that, do you have an active category for that? Because Paul does. Titus now does. The elders in Crete do. And for generations of the church who look to live by sound doctrine, there's an active category here, right? Cretans were vulnerable. Their faith was vulnerable, right? So if pastors are to lead and feed and provide and protect the flock of God, then pastors need to equip the saints to be sound in the faith. And we respond as members of the church to godly discipline with humble faith. So instead of being sound in the faith, what were the Cretans? Let's look at verse 14. Uh, It says that, you know, we're doing this. I'm rebuking because I want you to be sound in the faith. But the Cretans, they've been not devoting themselves. Verse 14, to Jewish myths instead, they've been devoting themselves and to the commands of people who turn them away from the truth. So you will be devoted to something. That's, that's what he's saying here. They, they, they're devoted. <laughs> it's not that they're not devoted. They're devoted. But to something else. And I wonder about if the Cretans were devoted to these, these myths and these commands of men, I wonder what we're devoted to. Right? As Americans, we love our independence, so we resist authority. We love our freedom of speech, So we use our words to communicate our own values, perhaps without even testing it according to the word of God. We love our inalienable right to pursue happiness. So we fill our day, what, with with scrolling on the internet and, and movies and TV shows by night? Like, thank God for streaming. I wonder if we use Americanized language, right? Liberty, freedom, It's my right to do this, to cover up a heart that is actually wandering from the truth. We should be more self-suspecting. Think about it this way. We listen to voices all day. 
I wonder how many minutes of our day are filled with listening to voices. Voices that either help us treasure Christ or those that turn us away from the truth. Right? What are some of the voices that we might hear? Anybody else listen to music? I do. Anybody else read or listen to audiobooks? Yeah, that's me. Anybody participate in conversations throughout the day? Yeah, I listen to people. Uh, what about social media? There's a lot going on there. Radio, TV programs, news media, streaming services, podcasting. We fill our day with content. And if all things are spiritual, and they are, then these are spiritual influences in your life. Do you think you'll be unaffected with a tsunami of content that captivates your mind and charms your heart toward things that are not of God, that turn you away from the truth? Do you think you'll be unaffected by that? Well, as long as there's a pastor who preaches a great sermon on Sunday that redirects my heart, you know, as long as I, you know, do my devotions each day, as long as I read my Bible, say my prayers, make a financial contribution to the church. No. No, there's an inseparable connection between belief and behavior. Whether it's doctrinal heresies, myths, or the latest self-improvement book, Commands of People, we are easily turned from the truth. The commands of God reveal to us the path of life. What do the commands of men do? We ignore these spiritual threats of influence to our peril and, let me add this, to the peril of the brothers and sisters that live in this church alongside of us, right? This isn't just an active category for us as an individual or as a married couple or as a family, but rather as the family of God, I need to fight for your soul. I need to watch over you in your profession of faith. I want to fight with you and for you. Our response must not just be a compliance with needed correction, but we must embrace godly correction. So we embrace godly discipline when we turn from the truth that we may be sound in the faith. So we guard, we embrace, and point number three, we profess. We profess the gospel through living faithfully devoted to God. Or we deny God by our faithless works of disobedience. In all this talk, Paul has not been saying, you know, the Cretans are the worst. Titus, you should just find a more compliant church that will follow your teaching. Go, go find an easier church with a new flock to shepherd. Quite the opposite. Paul's a good shepherd. He knows how to be a, a pastor through long-suffering. He's planting and building churches in Crete for the purpose of building up these people. He loves these people. He is eager for these people to treasure Christ. And he exhorts Titus to appoint godly leaders in the church who will preach the word and cultivate a culture of discipleship in the church 
This church of redeemed people who are zealous for good works. That's grace. It's all of grace. So let's think a little bit longer about our response to grace. Okay? Because for Paul, he, he teaches through and through what salvation is. That salvation is by grace through faith. And it produces something in the life of the believer. So let me ask this question. How is the life of a believer different than the life of an unbeliever? Let's look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Let's let's pause there. You see the clear distinction? He uses a poetic refrain to describe one group and another group. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Let's consider it together. To the pure, all things are pure. Let's start here. In the original language, this this word for pure conveys something of the Old Testament idea or the declaration of what was clean or unclean, pure or unpure, impure in the Levitical law, right? It wasn't, if you go back to Leviticus and Numbers, some of those older texts, you'll see that it wasn't just about guilt offerings and sin offerings. It was also about the purity of the people, some, some cleansing rites that they would have to do. Why? If you're, if you're doing a Bible reading plan and you're getting to this section of scripture like I am, take heart because this is a holy God who is creating a way for an unholy people to commune with him, right? So think about it. God is perfectly pure. He's perfectly clean. The people are not. And so he creates a way. He creates a way. So who is Paul talking about when he refers to that which is pure, right? So David asks it this way in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Jesus doubles down on this when he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, right? David's response was he who has clean heart or excuse me, clean hands and a pure heart. So you're blessed if you're pure in heart, you'll see God. And if you have clean hands and a pure heart, that's the person who can ascend the hill of the Lord. Well, then who's pure? Not me. Not you. Apart from Christ, you're not pure. You're not good. You're not clean. You're not righteous. You're not holy. We are but beggars on the doorsteps of God's mercy. And it's in that posture of humility and desperation before God that he meets us with his arms of everlasting grace. The incarnate son of God is the radiant one who ascended the hill of the Lord. Jesus is the one who was defiled by our sin for our salvation. Christ's arms were the ones that were strung out, stretched wide on the cross of Calvary so that as his crimson blood flowed, Our dirty garments would be washed clean as snow, right? Isaiah prophesied about this very moment in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah was poured out. He poured out his soul to death 
He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many to make intercession for the transgressors. So do you believe? Let me ask you, do you believe? Do you believe that Christ died? Do you believe that he bore the sins of many? Do you believe that he bore your sins? All your sins? Do you believe that all the righteous wrath that was well-deserved because of your sin was put on Jesus? More than that, do you believe that Jesus was raised to new life? That he proved to be the conqueror over sin and death? Do you believe that he reigns and that he now makes intercession for you? Do you believe that your life is found in Christ? Do you believe that you are being sanctified, you are being washed, you are being cleansed, that Christ gave himself up to redeem us from all, unlaw- all unrighteousness, all lawlessness? Do you believe that God in Christ gave himself to purify, to purify for himself a people of his own possession? So who are the pure? Those who are made pure by grace alone, through faith alone. We're sanctified and continually being sanctified. Thus, Paul says to the pure, all things are pure. That's not to say once saved, always saved. Rather, it's to say that the Lord is actively helping us. He's washing us. He's cleansing us. He's sanctifying us. He's helping us to apply godly wisdom in areas that need great discernment. Right? He turns our affections from the things of this world toward the things of God. He helps us to live well-integrated lives that align with his moral character. He helps us make wise decisions through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He helps us hold the faith with a good conscience that we might grow into maturity. So to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. You know, Paul says there's two kinds of people. There's, there's no other way around it. And he leaves no question as to the state of the unbelieving person. Their minds, their rational faculty, and their consciences, right? Their, their sense of morality are defiled. Instead of relying on the infinite wisdom of God, apart from Christ, we rely on our own wisdom. Isaiah goes on to say that all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like a wind, our sins sweep us away. That's a sobering reality that apart from Christ, you are unclean. You are defiled. You are impure. And verse 16 drives this home. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So think about this. Paul isn't Specifically talking about those who are outside of the church. He's talking about those who are inside the church. Who have made a profession of faith 
They attend church on Sundays. They contribute to the offering basket. They say their prayers before meals and bedtimes. They affirm the church's statement of faith. They profess to know God. But what is the test of genuine profession? Jesus himself taught in the Sermon of the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, there will be many who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? In your name, Jesus? And I will say to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus had an active category for those who would profess to know God, but who were self-deceived and who denied God by their works. So let's get personal. Have you made a profession of faith? If you have, how do we, to the best of our ability, discern whether that profession is genuine? Titus 1.16 affirms what Jesus taught in this sermon, that all our works either confirm or condemn us. Why? Because our works either confirm the presence of genuine faith or they deny God. Our works are either born out of obedient faith or they deny the gospel, right? So consider the, perhaps the three possible motivations that somebody might do good works. There are works that are produced by legalism, right? Where you're trying to earn your status before God. You're trying to justify yourself, right? Right? There is not something that has already justified you, so you have to justify you. So you're going to try to do some good works. That is denying God. There's also works that are produced out of license. Meaning, you know what? If Jesus covered my sin, then I can go on sinning. It's okay. I'm free to be me. I'm not going to put myself under the authority of a biblical church. I'm not going to commit in covenant membership to other believers. I am an authority unto myself. Because Jesus at one point covered me, and so now I can do whatever I want. But I'll do some good works just to feel good about myself. Because who's the authority? It's me. That is denying God. There's a third possible motivation for doing good works. It's what Titus is all about. It's works that are produced by gospel zeal. Gospel zeal. I don't know if you've thought about the word zeal. You know, we think about that word. I think of like the the New Testament descriptions of like zealots. (laughs) You know, people that are out there on the streets that that are waving signs like, There's a kind of gospel zeal that is richly biblical and beautiful and something that we should aspire to. 
a zeal for good works that adorn the gospel, that point to what Jesus did for me, and it has changed my life. I'm not living for the authority of me, but because of Christ having justified me, I'm living for King Jesus, and I am zealous to do good works. Think about this in in terms of Jesus' descriptions of abiding, right? There are those who abide in Christ, who are created in Christ Jesus for good works, who are equipped for every good work. So we must either profess, we, we, we need to profess, not just with our mouths, but with our lives, that we were created for something more. We were created for good works. And if we do not abide, we're detestable, disobedient, and instead of being equipped for every good work, we're unfit for any good work. So that's the sobering conclusion of our text this morning. <laughs> that we profess the gospel through living faithfully devoted to God, or we deny God by our faithless works of disobedience. Are we one who is denying God? Assess your life. And if there is any False teaching that would threaten your life, will you guard against it? If there is godly correction that needs to come into your life, will you embrace it? And if you see that your life is not aligned, it's not producing good works out of a gospel zeal, then will you profess the gospel today? That Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. I'm saved because of him. And I'm going to live my life in obedient worship and submission to King Jesus. Who are you devoted to? You cannot serve two masters. For either you will love the one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to the one or you'll be devoted to the other. Are you dedicated consecrated? Is there an ardent love and affection that you have for God in Christ? Titus 1, 10 through 16 teaches us to guard against false teaching, to embrace godly discipline, and to profess the gospel through living faithfully devoted to God. Guard, embrace, profess. And we need God's help, don't we? Let's pray.